Citizen Podcast. Hi, my name is Carrie Kelly, and welcome to another episode of Citizen Podcast, where we are exploring the practice of citizenship and the politics of well being. Today we are talking about love. Not the mushy, romantic kind of love, but real love. How to love when it's hard or less obvious. How to love when we don't agree. How to love in the face of so much division and oppression. And so we are turning to the incredibly wise Sharon Salzberg, meditation master and best-selling author. We forget that there's a balance that we're looking for. And there's got to be a balance for there to be a sustained effort. And you can't leave yourself out totally. Because in the end, the kind of I think the motivational field and the whole field of intention with from which one is acting will get distorted. It'll get weird. You know, it's like if you give someone a gift and it's a freely given gift, that's one thing. And I think it brings us a lot of joy in the giving. If you give someone a gift because you feel you don't deserve to have anything yourself, that's a whole other thing. Sharon Salzberg has been teaching meta-meditation, or loving-kindness, since 1974. She's been seminal in not just bringing meditation and mindful practice to the West, but by modernizing the practices, making it relatable and accessible. Her latest book, Real Love, does just that. This book really challenged my ideas about love, especially given the state of the world. It's hard to love people who are perpetuating harm and separation. But if I'm being honest, I equally struggle with loving myself. And whenever I'd hear or read about (laughs) self-love, I'd roll my eyes. It just seemed impossible to me. Instead, I had my own flavor of love, one that was conditional and perfectionist. A perspective I realized that's not very different from the culture of scarcity and supremacy that is profiting off of the idea that love or worthiness must be earned, that one must be good enough to get or give love. But that's not what Sharon is talking about. Instead, she offers a more complex and inclusive perspective on real love. She says, Real love is not about letting yourself off the hook. Real love does not encourage you to ignore your problems or deny your mistakes or imperfections. You see them clearly and still opt for love. Love has the capacity to exist beyond difference and division, beyond imperfections and mistakes. And when we understand real love for ourselves, we can understand it for others, especially when it's hard. What Sharon is teaching and what I'm learning for myself is that love, too, is a practice. Welcome, Sharon Salzberg. It's so great to have you here. It's great to see you. So I want to talk about love right out of the gates. <laughs> Good. <laughs> you wrote this amazing book, Real Love. Well, you've written a lot of books, a lot of amazing books, in fact. But I do feel like this book really gets at the heart of why we're all here. Um, and I devoured this book. And so I'm going to ask a question that I'm sure you've gotten a lot, especially in the last couple months. Because we're living in a time where there are people in power doing really unlovable things. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you talk about loving everyone. But I personally have a really hard time 
with love, um, given the context of our country right now and given the things that are happening and the harm being done. And so how do we reconcile this idea of real love, of loving everyone with this moment of oppression or even just with the oppressor themselves? Mm -hmm. Well, something like starting with the hardest thing. <laughs> is that the hardest question? I mean, that was the first thing that came up for me when I was reading your book. It's like, okay, I want to be about real love, but like, I've got feelings I'm not proud of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've kind of watched a trajectory of, of my students or, or people I'm spending time with over the course of the last year. And maybe in the beginning of the year, people were saying, I'm so angry, I'm so outraged, I'm so freaked out. And more these days are saying, I can't bear my own mind. Yeah. I can't live with myself anymore. And, yeah. You know, and it takes a, a real exploration and a deep exploration. Like, what do we mean by love? Because if we mean um, complacency, then it's outrageous. One shouldn't go there, right. you know. Um, but uh, there is there there are many, many layers and levels of meanings of love. And I tell a story in the book, actually, about... Um, I got to spend a day once many years ago with this man, Miles Horton, who began a place called the Highlander Folk School. In those days, it was called that. It's called something else now. In Tennessee, and it was kind of a training school for a lot of civil rights Yeah, Highlander. Workers. Yeah, Highlander. Very famous. And, yeah. And, um, and very early environmental workers. But, you know, it really came to prominence in the civil rights era because it was like an integrated place in the South and... It was scandalous, you know, and there were all kinds of lawsuits and stuff like that. And So he and I got to spend a day together, and at one point we were talking about loving-kindness meditation because it was me, right? And, because and, uh, it was me. Because it was me. I mean, it's, you know, You're the loving-kindness person. Right. So, and he said to me, oh, Marty, Martin Luther King Jr., he said, Marty used to say to me, you got to love everybody. And I used to say, no, I don't. I only have to love the people who are worthy of being loved. And Marty would laugh, and he'd say, nope. You gotta love everybody. Wow. And before this was in the book, I very rarely I found told that story. But every time I told the story, I, I would get a lot of pushback, like, "Well, look what happened to him. You know, he got assassinated." And I thought, isn't that interesting that we tend to see cause and effect there? Yeah. That if Martin Luther King Jr. had been vicious and yeah, right, you know, conniving and full hatred, yeah. he would have been safe. Like, where did love get him? Kind of. That's thing. right. Exactly. But, you know, what if we disentangle that sense of cause and effect yeah. and not define love as a weakness and, you know, making you too open and all of that, but really seeing it. I mean, the Buddha taught loving kindness meditation, they say, is the antidote to fear. Now, that makes some sense, yeah. right, in our time. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and another part of it is that when you see how people can treat other people when they have declared them other, you know, they they depersonalize, dehumanize somebody. And, you know, it's one thing if you kick a table. It's another thing if you kick a person. You yeah. feel like you're kicking a table. Then we're really in trouble. Yep. And so, I mean, it's some kind of inner commitment, I think, to not duplicating that. You know, but that doesn't leave us resigned and apathetic and weak. It actually leaves us very strong because love can be a strength and compassion is a strength. And, you know, but this isn't come to... It's come to by experience, which means experimentation, not by being lectured, you know, or yeah. trying to lecture yourself or force yourself to be in a place you're not. I think it's a real stretch and it, it needs to be genuine. And um, that's why we practice. We kind of check it out. Like, what's it like? And we don't start with the most unthinkable person. 
you know, because that's like really like a bridge what I'm too doing. far. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's like a bridge too far. You know, you start with somebody you feel a little conflict with yeah. at work or something. And you kind of say, what's it like when I wish him well? When I, I wrote one book um, with Bob Thurman called Love Your Enemies. Oh, yeah. And um, that book, actually, it originally had a different title. Well, for a long time, it had a different title, which was based on Bob having seen a movie and... In the movie, there was a church, and in front of the church, there was a like an electronic billboard, as there often is, and there was a saying on that billboard, which was, "Love your enemies; it will drive them crazy," and that used to be the title of the book. And then, like, kill them with kindness. That kind yeah, of yeah, exactly. Like you know, yeah, the best revenge is living well. I'm not going to get sucked into that. Yeah. You know, I'm going to. Yeah. And it does throw people off, right? Like yeah. you do kind of like give in to their their you know trick. When you break down and That's right. freak out and That's and right. replicate their behavior. Exactly. And so I, I was very um, sad when that book title changed. It simply became Love, Love Your Enemies. And, but Bob, used to, we used to get asked that all the time. Bob was fond of saying, of course you want your enemy to be happier. If they'd be happier, they'd behave better. They'd be so much less of a jerk. <laughs> you know, so sometimes the most we can bring ourselves yeah. to say or think, you know, with somebody in, in the – because that practice, that particular practice depends on phrases. It's like offering, you know, may you be happy, yeah. may you be peaceful. And I've known people who really the most they could say was, may you be free of hatred. Yeah. And I think that's enough. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because I think your book gets at this, but we're seeing this, I think, play out across the movement. This sort of multidimensional idea of love. Mm -hmm. Like love being redefined in yeah. many different ways. Yeah. And yeah. I think one of the great examples of, of what love looks like in public right now is the way people are speaking truth to power. Because I love you, I'm going to tell you how I feel. Because I love you, I'm going to reveal mm -hmm. to you the mm -hmm. truth of, of your actions. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a really... Um, brave and bold expression of love. Mm -hmm. Like, are you surprised by what you're seeing? Um, I I am in a way. I am a child of the '60s, you That's know. Right. So. so we're coming back around. And and I I have always always thought of the civil rights movement as a deeply spiritual movement. Um, as it was, yeah. And you know, certainly you watch those documentaries of like Freedom Riders going out and praying, you know, crouching down and praying before they went out and were beaten or whatever. And um, the whole concept of nonviolence and, you know, it was... And it emerged in the church, right? Yeah, it definitely emerged in the church. And and then, like, all those rabbis going down, you know, and yeah. marching. and uh, You know, and, and it was a deeply, deeply spiritual movement. And we're seeing that play out again. Yeah. It's like we're returning to the thing that gives us courage and capacity to keep showing up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think the other thing that, like, I always learn from you, um, and certainly it's, I think, um, central to this book is um, is nuance and discernment, right? And and I think about, you know, that you talk about acceptance, um, and what it means to accept how things are with oneself or with the conditions that we live in. Mm -hmm. And then there's the like fighting to change them. You know, how do, how do we, how do we navigate that? Like, like at what point, cause I, I think you were just getting at that before when you were saying that it's not about being resigned, mm -hmm. but there is a, a tension there between like, mm -hmm. we can't tolerate how things are and we do still need to accept how things are. Like, how do we, like, it's almost like a simultaneous mm -hmm. contradiction. Well, it's the complexity of using the word acceptance. 
which, which can mean a lot of different things, yeah. you know, like, um, you know, you don't want to be obsessed with your disagreement, like fighting life all the time, because then you're just obsessed. And it's like, you know, when we get obsessed with someone's faults, a particular person's faults, right. and we go through the list again and again, and we never even think of a new or fault, with ourselves. you know, or with ourselves. We just do it again and again and again. A friend of mine who um, is very involved in AA, so I kind of suspect it's an AA saying, was once talking about his basic obsession with somebody else's faults. And he said, um, I've let him live rent-free in my brain too long. Oh, wow. You know. So we want to free our energy. And, and the more we are entangled and obsessed and fixated on what's wrong and we don't let in kind of the light, mm -hmm. um, the more tired we get mm -hmm. yep. and burnt out and I burnt mean, out the like more overwhelmed we get you know so uh we're just talking about balance and i've never kind of totally gotten behind the word except anyway you know even mm -hmm. if, as a definition of mindfulness which it often is used as we're going to if we're mindful you're going to accept things the way that they are because it does sound kind of inert you know yeah. like you right uh once someone asked me when i was talking about being mindful of sound which is a particular sort of meditation and um, he said, you know, what if it's the sound of the smoke alarm? Am I supposed to sit here mindfully knowing the smoke alarm's going off or should I get up? And I said, I'd get up, actually, you know, like, I think that's a good idea. Um, but it, it sounds that inaction, way. It doesn't mean inaction, right? It doesn't mean inaction, but maybe we're not coming from the usual place of reaction. Some people, in trying to hit that nuance, will say, well, we're responding instead of reacting. Maybe we're not driven, yeah. you know, to the same kind of reaction. And then it's also, it's interesting to look at just, I think, the the consequences of certain mind states that we might nurse or, or develop. It's like I first met Malika Dutt, mm -hmm. who you know, went on, who was, by that time, she had founded Breakthrough, which was an organization working against violence against women. And we were, we were just on a panel together, you know, that's how we met. And she said that she... Um, had first sort of woken up in, in that political sense, um, social justice sense, when a friend of hers was in the hospital in India. And as it happens, you know, when someone is in the hospital, you kind of need to take care of them or at least supplement their care. So she was spending an awful lot of time in the hospital with her friend, and her friend just coincidentally had been put on the burn unit because that's where the empty bed was. And a lot of the women on the burn unit had been burned by their husbands or burned by their in-laws or something like that. And so she was, like, horrified and changed her whole life to yeah. become an advocate, you know, and a powerful and incredible advocate out of that outrage. And then she said on the panel, but I don't know how to dial it down. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to turn it off. And mm -hmm. she said, interestingly enough, she said, my whole organization's like that, so we just turn on one another. Wow. And That's deep. It was amazing, you know, and... She's done a lot of searching, you know, since that point, and she's actually no longer there, but she's, you know, she's doing great work, and she's practicing all kinds of things, and, you know. It's amazing. Um, she's amazing, and so uh, I always, I try to listen deeply to my friends who are the most, um, who are like the strongest activists, because they know, you know, what what the experience is, and, and uh you know, I, I just learned from them. Well, and it's like, what are the things that inspire us and, and activate us? And what are the things that 
take us too far. Yeah. And sometimes they're just two sides of the same coin. I remember I saw that um, interview with you in Bell Hooks. Yeah up on the Upper West Side, and I remember her talking about your book and saying that she often contemplates um, the ways in which action, the action that she's taking reflects love. And I do think, to your point, we are seeing a lot of people sort of take their meditation off their cushion these days, especially Mm -hmm. right since the election. I mean, there is more of that, but there does seem to be still a gap (laughs) between well-intentioned contemplative and wellness communities and then those on the other side of the spectrum to your point that are like hardcore activists who don't know when to say no mm-hmm. how do you think we can bridge that gap like how do we integrate because I think that's one of the challenges I mean I'm one of those people that like your friend like <laughs> just like goes all the way until I burn out and then I have to put myself back together again and it's hard for me to say no I'm not sure I mean there's a problem we all have saying no but I think there's also there's also a problem saying yes, yeah. you know, like more. So in a way, like I remember early on, uh, like I hadn't been back from India all that long in the states, and I was talking to an activist friend of mine. And he said, "I can't even let myself enjoy a banana," you know. Yeah. And I said, "Really?" And he said, "Well, you know, I know the conditions." And I said, "Well, you know," and he also happened to have been an extremely depressed person. Yeah. And um, you know, and I thought, well. Maybe if he let himself enjoy more, he'd have more energy to try to make this world different. And yeah. so, yeah, um, you know, what do we have to be grateful for? Many people think that's just an excuse for doing nothing. Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, what can we appreciate? This is kind of an interesting consideration. Well, and and the ways in which that practice allows us to be more effective in service and in action right i don't know that they're separate and i'm learning that the hard way i'm as i want to be of service especially as like a white privileged woman with access to wellness Mm -hmm. you know like Mm -hmm. it's not about me excluding myself from that mission Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. about me including myself so that i can be of service and i think that's a really hard balance to strike in the book you said uh one does not have to be completely (laughs) self-loving To love others. Yeah, Belle and I got into a, a disagreement about I remember that, this, yeah. and but I feel you in this question because, you know, I think a lot of the ways in which I don't take care of myself and I don't say no has to do with my relationship to myself and how I feel about myself and what I think I'm worth and what's enough, mm-hmm. right? And so what does that mean? Like how, how do we reconcile those two things at the same time? I think the point I was trying to make is that we don't need to love ourselves completely. Like perfectly. Perfectly. You don't have to like wait till you graduate from right. perfect That's self-love. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because then it becomes a project and it's all we do. It's all we think about. But there is a certain way in which um, we forget that there's a balance that we're looking for. And there's got to be a balance for there to be a sustained effort. And you can't leave yourself out totally because in the end – the kind of I think the motivational field and the whole field of intention with from which one is acting will get distorted. It'll get weird. Right. You know, it's like if you give someone a gift and it's a freely given gift, that's one thing. And I think it brings us a lot of joy in the giving. If you give someone a gift because you feel you don't deserve to have anything yourself, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. And it just won't be that kind of source of joy. Yeah. No matter how they respond. Well, and there's another quote that you have in here that says, to truly love ourselves, we must challenge our beliefs that we need to be different or better, 
right? Which to me is the culture that we're swimming in, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. even the self-help community, we're going to talk about the $1 billion mindfulness community in a moment. Yeah, where are they? <laughs> but, yeah, where's the money? We want to know where's the but it's tricky, right? Because like even within the context of our community, we're swimming in a storyline of you're not good enough by mm-hmm, this, that, mm-hmm, by mm-hmm. this, you know, workshop or, you know, and, and we're a part of that dynamic mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. And so like, what does that, what does that look like to be invested, right? In like taking care of ourselves, but also not buy into the sales pitch <laughs> of like, you're not good enough and you need to do all these things to be whole. Well, I think one of the most um, subtle refinements of mindfulness is looking at your motivation before a conversation, before you sign up for that workshop, before you buy something. Um, and just take a look so that you know. Like, why are you doing that? Yeah, where where am I coming from? Yeah. And, you know, even just hang out with that, whatever you discover for a while, because yeah. it will be varied, no doubt, and nuanced. And, uh, but it's very interesting to discover that. and. And kind of keep an eye on that as you evolve. Um, you know, what do you expect? What do you think has to happen from this workshop or, or retreat that you're doing? And uh, why? where's the disappointment coming from? Was your expectation reasonable? You know, we have so many models of self-perfection also. And, oh, yeah. You know, nothing is good enough, even yep. if it's great. Yep. You know, it's just not enough. Yep. Yeah. And I think about... Um, the role of attachment in mm-hmm. that practice, right? Like, you know, if we're attached to the idea, mm-hmm. you know, the body image idea or the the mm-hmm. intelligence idea or the perfect meditation idea, mm-hmm. um, you know, then I think something has gone sideways. And so how do we dance with, like, the destination <laughs> but be on the path? Well, I mean, I mean, some of it, I think, is just reminding oneself of wisdom we already have, which is that perfection is unreal. It's like a piece of fruit is perfect for like a second and a half, you know, yeah. then it's decaying. Yeah. Or, you know, I bought a new car and it was not long before this bird pooped on it, which I thought was outrageous. I thought, how dare you? You know, like, no. <laughs> this is my car and it's, it's perfectly car. shiny it's, right. and it's clean like and here. it smells it's good. Like, yeah. You know, so, uh, and, you know, in the course of really maybe exploring loving kindness as an example and loving kindness for oneself, you begin to see that, oh, isn't that odd? It's like hardest for me, than, even harder than the enemy, you yeah. know? Um, what's that about? And uh, we see all kinds of things in which we kind of discount ourselves or leave ourselves out. Or uh, There's certain meditations where you're actually receiving the loving kindness of others and and you might see, oh, you know, I would rather not be in this scene after all, you know, yeah. let those two send loving kindness to one another, you know, yeah. and it's it's kind of amazing the sort of things that we discover, but it's just conditioning. Well, and going back to the first question I asked you, the doozy, you know, when I think about sometimes my, my relationship to self-love, um, it looks a lot like my relationship to you know, number 45, you know, mm-hmm. there are times where like, I really have self-loathing and, mm-hmm. and instead of projecting my, like, I must love the enemy, you know, maybe I should s- stay in a practice of, I must love myself. And then well, the- I mean, it's, it's a process, you know? So like I was just recently talking to somebody who said, my meditation is not working. And I said, why isn't it, why do you think it's not working? And she said, cause I sit and have all these negative emotions. Right. And I said, did you think about, not calling them negative and calling them painful. Yeah. 
And I said, you know, I have this sort of goal in my own life. I mean, we all use language kind of recklessly anyway, but, you know, every time I say I have a bad knee, I try to correct myself and say, well, it's not bad, it just hurts, you know. It's like, it shouldn't be ashamed, you're you know. You're not judging your <laughs> yeah. knee. Yeah, you know, dreadful knee, you're a bad, you know. Well, and you have a chapter in your book called Stories We Tell Ourselves yeah, About right. Ourselves, and I think it's like the same thing. Yeah. And I have like many of those, but like, how do we like catch ourselves into the ones that are particularly in loop? Uh-huh. Well, it's also, it's a, it's a result of mindfulness and not just noticing that they're happening, but kind of playing with our attitude toward it. So another thing I have in the book is a suggestion that if you have a persistent critical voice that's sort of useless, you know, like not a useful one. Like an unproductive one. Yeah, an unproductive, you know, nasty voice that keeps coming back again and again. Give it a name. Yeah. You know, give it a wardrobe. Like befriended, yeah. Yeah, give it a wardrobe. Give it a persona and then see how you relate to it. Yeah. And in effect, that's exactly right. We want to befriend it. Not let it take over. That's something else but not have so much hostility and fear toward it. Well, this is what I love about this book. And there's another quote that you have, which, you know, says that real love is not, not about letting yourself off the hook, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not saying, like, let's let ourselves off the hook entirely. Mm-hmm. Real love does not encourage you to ignore your problems or deny your mistakes or imperfections. You see them clearly and you still opt for love, right? So there's so much... Um, I just feel like everything about what I would read in your book, it was like reading between the lines <laughs> about love and about showing mm-hmm. up and about forgiveness and about radical acceptance mm-hmm. and about action. It's not about the obvious, right? Mm-hmm. It's not about the binary. And I think as I've practiced with you and others, you know, that to me is when the practice gets really juicy. What is in between? Mm-hmm. What is the messy, uncertain, unpredictable truth of what is? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm super grateful to you for that. I want to give a shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon, without whom this podcast wouldn't be possible. Citizen Podcast is reimagining citizenship for all of us, not the kind that requires documents and papers but an everyday practice of how we take care of each other and the whole of society. We're daring to ask hard questions about who we are and who we are to one another and what's possible when we show up for the well-being of the whole. But making a good podcast takes a village, and so we're building one on Patreon. And what we love about this platform is that it's mutual. It's about supporting one another, By joining this community, you get lots of good stuff from us, like practice tools and meditation, community forums that inspire conversation, and lifestyle content that you can trust. And not only does it keep us going, but it keeps us honest and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. You can opt in for as little as $1 per month, or $5, or $10, and so on. And think of it this way, for the equivalent of one coffee per month or one yoga class or one dinner, you get to be a part of something bigger, a call to action to become better citizens for humanity. So check us out on patreon.com forward slash C-T-Z-N-W-E-L-L and build with us as we create a culture of well-being that works for everyone. Okay, let's talk about the $1 billion meditation business. 
when I asked you about this before, you were like, where's the money? Um, well, I keep hearing that. You know, I think, really? Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I literally don't know where the money is. Well, and, you know, globally, because we do this research all the time to try and get a sense of, like, how much power, you know, in quotations, this community has, this collective wellness community. The global wellness market is, like, a $4 trillion market, which is, like, a lot so that's- of money. Yoga, meditation, Yoga, vitamins. ecotourism, vitamins, healthy food, right? So it's like the whole, you know, healthy, sustainable, mindful, you know, conglomerate, if you will. Um, but meditation in its own, you know, right is a, now a billion dollar business. Mm-hmm. We've got politicians meditating, our dear friend, Congressman Tim Ryan. We've got celebrities, many celebrities swearing by meditation. Um, CEOs now, you know, there was a, an article a couple months back that Jack Dorsey, the, the CEO of Twitter, did a, a Vipassana, you know, so people are, this is really becoming mainstream. Um, and big companies are getting in the game. Ford Motor Company, Google, Goldman Sachs, General Mills. Um, is there a danger, do you think, in like the mainstreaming of this practice? Well, there are many dangers. Um but I, you know, I don't mind. I mean, I, I'm I'm kind of a big advocate of you know the movement. Yeah. And um, when I you know, because people, of access, because of access, and when I, you know people complain about people who teach in corporations, for example, which yeah. I've done, yeah. you know, and and do. But I said, you know, I've never gone into a corporation and had an employee say, you know, I'd like to be more soulless so I can work harder and <laughs> and be more productive. It's like everybody talks about their alcoholic brother or their yeah. teenage kid or their own sleeplessness or, you know, people are just people. And so I don't, I don't get the sort of ideological. Yeah. Although, you know, some people have it for sure, yeah. but I, I just don't, I'm not there. Um, but there are lots of dangers. I mean, there are, there's a big emphasis because of access and I think it's well motivated and, you know, by good-hearted people who, what they talk about is how do we scale this? How do we get this in the hands of, yeah. you know, more and more and more and more and more people? And yeah. I always say, I just said this in Virginia the other day, I said, you know, I don't know that, that the world will be more radically changed by 15 people going deep yeah. than 100,000 people yeah. just having a casual acquaintance. Well, and why does it things. need to be a trade-off? Yeah. No, that's true too. Well, part of the problem, and I mean, it's a personal decision about where you're going to devote your own yeah. energy. But part of the issue is, in order for something to scale, either uh, you have more and more and more teachers with less and less and less training, right. uh, or somehow technology steps in and takes the place of a in-person real relationship with the And there teacher. are consequences to that, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And, it's evolution. And- yeah, and some people are trying, for sure, you yeah. know, um, which I think is also great. Yeah. But, uh, you know, by the time friends of mine, because so part of what happens is that in many institutions and organizations, um, they kind of want their own people trained up. Yeah. So that they can deliver the service yeah. and the, the like performance based. Oh, I see what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, no, so you know, they want they want in house yoga teachers, yeah. they want in house meditation teachers. And, you know, from my point of view, and as I'm sure from your point of view, you know, I, I mean I asked somebody once, um, in one of these situations where they were uh the person having the conversation with this massive organization 
And would that organization really take meditation to heart? There could yeah. be huge implications for that. And she said, you know, but they really want some kind of train the trainers program. So I said, well, how long is the training to be a meditation teacher? And she said, eight hours. And I said, you cannot do that. You just mm -hmm. cannot do that. Mm -hmm. Like, don't let that happen. Um, I said, at the very, very least, don't have people feel they're done yeah. at the end of eight hours of training. Yeah. Like, this is just a taste. Yeah, and, you know, have them form a community and help one another and share best practices with one another. Yeah. Like, just don't have them do something for eight hours and then go out yeah. with a card, you know, and yeah. say, I'm there. And because it's so dangerous, it's dangerous for the person. And who knows what they're what really going to say. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and it's a powerful position to be in, right? Mm -hmm. To facilitate a, a transformational experience. Mm -hmm. um, but I agree with you. I mean, I, you know, like all things, you know, these practices are evolving. And, um, you know, I often say from a yoga perspective, like, I don't care how they get to the mat. Mm -hmm. I just want them to get to the mm -hmm. mat. Mm -hmm. um, and I also do think that there's, um, you know, the pendulum swings often too far. And I think about, you know, the intention for a lot of these sort of big companies to democratize these practices might be good, but the impact might not, right? And and I'm even thinking about like, you know, corporations that are like leveraging mindfulness and wellness practice for performance mm -hmm. and retention and, right, like is, is like, is, in I, I know you speak often, right, from a like personal standpoint around like our attachment to those things, right, mm -hmm. backfire on us often. And so are we going to miss the point, right? Like will the, will, will the message you think get lost when we start to like, um, translate these tools and practices into just another, you know, tool of capitalism. You know, do we do we miss the point? Perhaps, but that doesn't mean that state is forever. Right. I mean, I guess one fear is that right. it is forever because you have a certain intention or goal, and you've met it and you stop, or yeah. you, or you don't, or you dismiss it. You know, something like that. Uh, but I think at least just as often and. Probably, I suspect, much more often somebody gets a taste of something and then thinks to themselves, I want to see where this can take me. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to stop here. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I mean, I'm sort of like amazed at the proliferation of these practices. And, and I even do think that there's a role that they're playing in the movement, whether yeah. we can see it or not or point to it or not. The fact yeah. that people are grounded and centered um, and curious and compassionate, you know, I think is a testament to the fact that these practices have become, um, have been seeded, right? They've kind of mm -hmm. infiltrated culture mm -hmm. in ways that we can't even like identify anymore. Yeah. Well, back to your earlier point about loving oneself, you know, it's like, I think to stand up to the story, it's not just stories we tell ourselves, it's stories others tell about us, to us. Like, uh, you know, your life is worth, what was it, a dollar and five cents or a dollar fifty? Right. You know? Uh, from the march. From the march, yeah. yeah. You know, so like if you're a kid going to school in Florida um, where your senator receives money from the NRA, they divided the amount of money he received from the NRA That's by right. the number of school children and right. realized my life is worth, I think it was a dollar five cents, yep. you know? Uh, and you've got to step away from the stories others tell about you and realize how much you're, you're worth. 
And then, then you fight. And then you can change the story. Yeah. When it's funny, as I think about, like, maybe the impact of these practices on our culture, um, I think about the Emmas. I think about these kids and, like, what they pulled off with March for Our Lives. And it was, like, so skilled and sophisticated and intersectional and inclusive and compassionate. Mm -hmm. Things that it took me, like, 40 years (laughs) to, like, understand. And so I'm, like, there's something about the youth that are coming up that have already been programmed (laughs) with some of these real tools. Mm -hmm. Do you think of all of the things that we practice, loving kindness, compassion, empathy, um, courage, um, love, you know, is there one ingredient that you think is like the thing we need to really center right now, given this moment that we're in? Like, is it compassion? Do we like, is that the thing we really need to keep coming back to as we fight? I think it's wisdom, actually. I mean, it's everything, of course. It's not just one thing, but I think it's wisdom. It's perspective. Because um, there are times I've seen like, I mean, I get afraid, you know, I don't like being in New York City and, and realizing that swastikas are being painted two blocks away. Yep. You know, I have like very visceral reactions to that and probably genetic reactions to that, you know. Um, and in the fear, you just lose perspective, yeah. you know, and and you make all kinds of crazy decisions because you don't realize there are options and there are, you know. Well, it affects uh, your nervous system. Yeah, and... totally. And everything shuts down and, and yeah. you don't, you know, you just don't see clearly. And it's kind of the nature of being overwhelmed by those states. And and so all those reminders which we offer ourselves and we offer one another. Because uh, sometimes we really need someone, we need it to come from someone else. Yeah. And, you know, that everything changes and that we don't know the answer right now. What we see is in front of us. It doesn't mean it's the end of the story. Yeah. And that uh, even the good that we do that seems very small is important to do the fractal yeah because we don't know where it's going to go and uh, you know that we're not in control of the universe that things take time how do we source that wisdom is it like um meditation and listening or is it being exposed to one another in relationship is it seeking teachers like if someone was like i want more of that thing wisdom that sharon's telling me to get more of like where do they find it do we want to point them to books do we point them to teachers do we point them to themselves well it's always oneself right at the end but i think it's 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 about and for me of course it would be meditation because that's my background that's how i i formed a sense of integrity and um, clarity about what was important to me. You know, we're fed so many lies and myths about what strength is or what will make us happy. Right. And, you know, we're taught day in and day out, like vengefulness is the way. And and then, But you really look at your mind the last time you were consumed by vengefulness. It wasn't a very happy place. It wasn't pretty. And it wasn't productive. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't serve. And so, and then, you know, in these experiments, we were always looking like, how does it feel to be compassionate? Am I really such a sucker when I'm compassionate mm-hmm. the way I always believed or was told? Um, you know, so we get to decide for ourselves out of out of being able to pay attention. Is that what you mean by idiot compassion? I, I saw that referenced. Is that what it's called? Idiot compassion? Uh, yeah, that's what Trungpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan Lama, called it. Um, idiot compassion, uh, which was his phrase, was um, uh, really kind of like compassion without wisdom, without an understanding. And... Uh, 
you know, with the idea that compassion really needs to be accompanied by discernment and and clarity and and at the very least understanding the context in which you are standing right then. So mm-hmm. maybe what is truly most compassionate in a certain situation, for example, is saying no. Mm-hmm. It's telling someone, no, you can't move back in. Mm-hmm. Or I'm not going to give you any money for you just to mm-hmm. do what you're doing with it. Or saying, I don't know. Yeah. Or and saying, it, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, and that's not the same as, oh, I'm, I'm compassionate. I must give them the money. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between compassion and empathy? Because I feel like those terms are sometimes um, conflated. Yeah, they're mostly conflated. I think... Um, we would say compa- uh, empathy is like a necessary but not sufficient condition for compassion to arise. It's like we need empathy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm glad for all the empathy training that seems to be happening. And all the and, science. I mean, there's so much yeah. being invested in empathy right yeah, now. Yeah, which is great because it's a cold, cruel world. It really yeah. is. But um, empathy is just not enough because um, – you might have a genuine sense of empathy for someone, like you see them or you witness them and you feel into, like, ooh, that must really hurt and that must really be scary. But maybe you have a genuine moment of empathy and that frightens you and you just want to run away or maybe Mm. you are so tired, you're so fatigued and overcome anyway. You hear someone's story, you just want them to go away. Um, Or maybe you blame them. I was talking to a... Uh, a therapist not too long ago, and they said, I've gotten into this bad and kind of weird little loop where I'm finding myself blaming all my clients. Like, I told you six months ago what to do. You know, like, not out loud, but, yeah. you know, that's what's going through Get it mind. together. <laughs> yeah. So uh, maybe that's our response. So the empathy was genuine, but yeah. the next response after that is something we would not call compassion. So or, empathy is the feeling and compassion is like the response? Yeah, I okay. mean, you could say that empathy is the resonance, you know, it's like we're vibing with somebody mm-hmm. and compassion is the potential mm-hmm. response mm-hmm. of many, many possible responses. You were just recently in Charlottesville. Yeah. And I imagine that that is a place given what happened this past summer where empathy and compassion are needed to understand like what went down there what did you experience there like what amazed you what surprised you what did you learn and it pretty intense i went specifically because of that you know yeah. what happened last summer and, uh, and because i got invited and it just barely fit <laughs> into my schedule it was uh, a little setback by the snow but <laughs> you know I, I flew from california to dc and a friend drove me down to charlottesville and Oh, yeah, that's I was there for trip. a few days, and then I had a car back to D.C., and then it was really complicated. Um, but uh, it it really kind of blew me. I mean, I went because I felt so much for those people. And there's a really big insight meditation community there, and uh, the Mind and Life Institute, who are friends of mine, who also moved back down there. You know, so it's just like so much connection, and it was intense. You know, people had this term, like they kept calling it the events, the events of last August. Wow. Which I thought was interesting, like person after person. And like that was, that was like a change moment. Yeah, and people talked about trauma a lot. And somebody drove me by the place where the girl had yeah. been like mowed down and there were all these flowers. And, uh, but people are sort of shell-shocked. And it, but it's really ongoing. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not like it's over. 
Um, and they know that. Yeah. Um, what is the, did they say they needed something or like, what was the, um, like, how does a community like that recover? Um, I think they have to recover together. I mean, there were several, several communities that I was with at different uh, times. And I I think it's, it's partly, uh, communities joining within their community, you know, like, not feeling so solitary with one's own feelings. Like coming and, together. Yeah, coming together. And mostly I think um, it's very difficult to do, but I think there's a lot of recovery that happens through action. So one of the things I, I was trying to do there, and I don't know how artfully I managed to do it really, but was I was trying to make a distinction between the kind of action I would encourage when you're thinking about having a more civil conversation with mm-hmm. your uncle at Thanksgiving dinner mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because they voted in a way that you did not really like. Uh, and there's a lot of energy all around the country going toward that, yep. you know, and and I think that's great. But I, I said, this is different. These are people with Nazi flags, you know. Mm-hmm. And I said, for me, trying to have a conversation and understand where they're coming from is a fraction of what I would feel moved to do, which in part what I'd feel moved to do would be doing everything I can to engage in the political process so that those particular people who are waving Nazi flags don't have the power to legislate uh, because the consequences are very severe. And I said this is not hatred and it's not um, out of uh, some kind of corrosive demeaning of them, but I, I think it's enough. Well, it's wisdom. It's like choose your actions wisely. Right after the election, um, I heard a similar thing. I was traveling around doing house parties. People were inviting me to just help facilitate where to go, where we go from here was kind of the thing people were asking for. And I was hearing the same thing. Like people were disturbed <laughs> about the people in their life that had voted for Trump and had a yearning to like, reconcile that like they were just like determined to have some kind of transformational conversation with that person and I heard this over and over and over and over again and finally I was like hold up I said make a list of the number of people in your life who voted for Trump and it would be like one you know my cousin from blah 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 my aunt from you know three you know two or three depending on where people were from and then I said Make a list of everyone in your life that have gone back to sleep. And it was like 40 people. And I was like, where do you think our problem is? It's sort of like what you were saying to me before. It's like, you have to pick the furthest person to love. Like, just how about love all the people around you first and Mm -hmm. and start there. And it was like a real awakening for me around like, how do we organize? Because we tend to like, go for the hardest thing. Like if I fix the hardest thing, then things will be right. Or we're trying to fix the thing that we just can't accept within ourselves. But really it was about engagement. Like what's going on that our peers and our coworkers and our family members are all going back to business as usual? Mm -hmm. Like what do we do with that? That's a majority. And so I want to ask you about voting and <laughs> and civic engagement because that's that's really what this podcast is about, right? It's about um, not citizenship as defined by papers or where you're from, 
And also not citizenship as defined by like an election every two to four years or a crisis like in Charlottesville. It's citizenship as defined by practice, right? Like what would it look like if we engaged every day in public service the way that we engage every day in meditation or yoga or, you know, drinking green juice or the $1 billion mindfulness movement? Um, (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things I have admired about you and we've known each other for a long time is that, you know, you have been an outspoken teacher for civic engagement, for political engagement, certainly for voting. I mean, you've had you have a voting, you have an election time meditation. You you give election resources when the time comes, um, and you've been such an ally to our work and the way in which we're kind of mobilizing this community. But there is like a um, a gap, right, in how we show up, right? It's like either because we have to, or because social media just blew up, or because the election is around the corner, or because we're responding to something like Charlottesville, you know, what does it, what do you think it looks like to transform our culture so that citizenship is as synonymous as meditation, right? So that citizenship is as frequent as eating healthy or these things that we buy into so frequently within the wellness culture. Um, But politics is this thing that, you know, we do only occasionally, Mm -hmm. you know, when we have to. How do we close that gap? I suspect it's going to be um, small circles of people who find um, not only joy but meaning in in those kind of common actions. You know, like somebody said to me, they have this idea that maybe people uh, should meditate together. You know, some group of people meditate together. And then go phone bank, yep. like just like whip out their phones and then talk about, because this is the interesting part, talk about what came up in their minds. Yeah. Um, because we have that capacity, presumably as meditators, we've been cultivating that very thing. And, you know, to be able to share that and not just sit with the fear and think, oh, I humiliated myself, I'm never doing this again, um, to really, you know, engage, yeah. even on that level, because I think we will find a lot of support in one another. So, of course, when I was in Charlottesville, we talked about voting, and everyone looked stunned. I don't think they were expecting that. Um, because I think a lot in their hearts, they're really trying to come to terms with their own fear and hatred and everything that inevitably would arise in a situation like that. And um, But I think it was always in terms of their minds and their, you know, their personal efforts. I don't think it was, I don't think they were thinking about voting. Yeah. But because one of my things was that maybe having a civil dialogue, first of all, it's not going to happen, but, you know, with some people. Um, but maybe it's not enough. Yeah. That's kind of not the point. Well, and I, I'm with you. Like, how do we bridge civil discourse with action in a way that reflects our practice, in a way that reflects our values? I think what I love about what you're saying to bridge the gap. And we, we think about this all the time, right? And we facilitate small circles. And and I do love the idea of civil discourse. And I think for meditators and, you know, yoga practitioners, they're predisposed to a compassionate practice that might allow for a more productive exchange sometimes. I think when we're centered and resourced. Um, but I agree that conversation without action is limiting. Mm-hmm. The same way that action without consciousness and compassion can be harmful. And so there's a way in which I really want to see all of those things come together in some kind of civic expression. But I love what you're saying around um, we're called to meditate because we value it, Mm -hmm. because it makes us feel good. (laughs) 
because we see the way it's, it's transforming our lives. Mm-hmm. And I do think that people don't believe or aren't sure whether um, that will translate for them politically. Right. Often people we hear people say my vote doesn't count. We hear that all the time around why they're, you know, so passive about voting. Um, so I'm wondering, like, as you're as you're describing what you experienced, I'm wondering what are the ways in which we can help people realize that their vote, their voice, their small circle meditating and phone banking actually does, in fact, make a difference. Well, it does. I mean, you look at these elections that are being decided by, you know, 62 votes know. or something, you know, yeah. like. Well, and we've got the blue wave happening, right? Like there is something shifting in the way in which people are showing up. You know, as we kind of end this conversation, is is there, you know, what is the call to action? I feel like that's one of the things I love about you is you you rarely um, leave a meditation without a call to action. Is that true? No. I think so. There's always a like, this is what it looks like in your life. Given that we're in front of a midterm election, given that, you know, we're coming out of a year of, you know, rollbacks and um, resistance. What is the thing that you want to remind people of in addition to their practice that, you know, that we can do that can move us in the direction of progress? Well, I think whether it's a question of affirming your love for yourself, like I'm worth something, Mm -hmm. I'm worth decent treatment, you know, um, decent opportunity, or love for another, whether it's your grandchild or, you know, mm-hmm. someone's going to be trying to breathe long after we're not here anymore, mm-hmm. you know. and uh, Hopefully. Hopefully, yeah, maybe not. Um, but, uh, or it's this kind of more general sense of love for life. Um, we're moved to try to do something, whether it's the small good that's in front of us or kind of helping put more systemic change in place, you know. That reflects love. Yeah, that would never be just one person, but it's like a collective effort. And um, it's over and, not or, but and voting. Yeah. You know, it's like we've got to participate in the system as it is. Democracy Um, is love. Yeah. It's It's how we take care of each other. That's right. No, it's true. And, you know, I was once talking to a person who was – kind of a new friend, and uh, his son was going to be turning 18 just before the presidential election. And so there were, you know, there were different members of the family, and there were there were three voters, and I just assumed they voted. And, and at one point he said, well, you know, we don't vote. And I said, no, you have to vote. It's like you have to vote. Um Wow. And and basically, you know, his commentary was more like, well, they're really kind of the same, these two candidates, which turned out not to be true, but they're really kind of the same, except at the margins. And I said, people live at those margins. Yeah. You know, if you're talking about the difference between a $10 an hour minimum wage and a $15 an hour minimum wage, that's a big difference yeah. in someone's life. And yeah. that's- you've got to vote for them, you know, even if you feel, and I think it's true. It's, I mean, it won't be true for long, but, you know, I think his life is fairly um, apart from the kinds of things, you know, they're not in danger of being deported. They're not, yeah. you know, there's all kinds yeah. of stuff that we are all. They're insulated. Yeah, they're insulated. and uh, But that won't be true forever. It it's just won't. 
Well, and I love that that we're ending on this note of like real love is voting. Real love is loving the people on the margins enough to fight for them and vote for them and advocate for them. Um, and I know that you have said, I think, um, voting is our commitment to ourselves, to one another and to the whole yeah, uh, society. Yeah, yeah. And and we like to say, you know, um, voting is collective care, right? It's how we how we voice our love for each mm-hmm, other. Mm-hmm. And so I love that being sort of the end note for this conversation. We started with love. We started with the big question of how do we love the hard things? And now we end with how do we embody and vote love and voice love? And so thank you for being a commitment to that and for like fiercely advocating and stewarding the democratic process. <laughs> I'm so grateful to have had you in my life for the last couple of years, especially when politics and meditation weren't very popular. Yeah, um, It was always nice that I I could turn to you and be like, we've got to get this community to the polls. And you'd be like, hell yeah. So, um, so anyway, thank you, Sharon, for always being, um, I feel like out front and pushing us to stretch our practice to the next level. Thank you so much. We are reimagining a citizenship where everyone belongs. And that calls us to fight for the 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. Among them, 800,000 young people are living in fear because of the DACA crisis. An attack on immigrants is an attack on all of us. We need to fight to keep our families together and ensure the well-being of everyone. Please make it a practice of your citizenship to demand permanent protection, dignity, and respect for our undocumented communities. You can learn more about how to engage at fairimmigration.org and unitedwedream.org. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to practice metta, or loving-kindness. Not just when it's easy, but all the time. Tune into Sharon's podcast, Meta Hour, and check out her teaching schedule at SharonSalzberg.com. Special thanks to our producer, Trevor Exter, and DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at DJDrez.com. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, Well Read, at CitizenWell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowd-sourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $1 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes and share the love by telling your friends to check us out. Mm